0: Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning, church. And our brother, John Mark, in his prayer just said a lot, actually. Division and injustice. And division is not just merely digital flesh here and having to do this service, preach this sermon this way. Division in our country right now, you've seen the news footage, you've seen what's going on around the country the past several days, and there is cries of injustice. You know what happened with George Floyd, his death at the hands of a police officer in Minnesota just recently, and what that's leading to. His family is looking for justice. Can you find justice in this world? I would say not. Not to any great degree at all. What about those that are rioting and looting stores and committing more acts of violence and aggression towards local authorities? Is that justice? Is that the way to seek justice? I'll tell you what we may be seeing, what we may be seeking are the judgments of God. The judgments of God come in various shapes and forms. The judgment of God may come in the form of a virus. Ever heard of COVID-19? We've been going through that for several months. I'm not exactly sure what kind of a judgment that may be from the Lord. I don't want to presume on His will, on His grace. But you can make that argument just as you can for forms of judgment and earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, the fracture of a whole society as we've been seeing and living In this nation for at least a generation with the sexual revolution, Romans 1 refers to that as a judgment from God. But in all of that, here's the key. We're missing the single greatest judgment that is happening in our world right now. And it's happening under our noses thousands of times every single day. And we don't think much about it. What is that? It's death. I don't know if you know this, but death is unnatural. It was not God's original plan and purpose for mankind until sin destroyed all of that you may not know this more than 150,000 people are dying around the world every day that's maybe five million a month which is the entire population of miami-dade county and broward put together add to that the number of dead throughout human history which is a staggering figure what's really tragic there is many of those people if not most have died, gone into eternity without knowing Jesus Christ. What waits them? Do they really rest in peace? Can you rest in peace? Especially with Judgment Day, can you rest in anticipation of Judgment Day? How does that apply to you? Everything about basic Christianity in this letter of 1 John, the big idea about it again is about assurance of salvation or eternal security. This book is about real born-again believers, followers of Christ, knowing for sure, as we're going to see today, that they're children of God, they're citizens of the kingdom, they're on their way as people in heaven, they're not afraid of judgment day, as opposed to people who think they are children of God and citizens of heaven, and they may not be. And the summary of this idea is wrapped up in summing up the whole book toward the end in chapter 5. It's the thematic verse for the book, verse 13 where John wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his goal in this book. And a dozen different times we have these statements like this, by this we know, or we know that either you are or you are not a Christian, And so John gives proof tests of faith for us to take. So everyone listening right now or viewing this, you need to see if you know, truly know, that you are a believer or you are an unbeliever regardless of what you tell yourself and what other people tell you. The three categories of tests come basically down to this. Number one is a truth test, okay? That's what you believe about God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we might call that the doctrinal test. And that's the first point of this message I'm giving to you today. It's about the declaration that we make. And then secondly, a test of obedience. Do you as a habitual way of life, imperfectly of course, do you obey, do you hunger to obey the will and the word of God? That would be what I would call the moral or practical test. And that will be the second point of the message, which is the confirmation of our faith. And then third, because if you confirm your faith, that gives you confidence to stand before God. But third would be the test of love. Do you love God and people? And first and foremost, do you love Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're a Christian, do you love your church? And that's what we would call the sacrificial test because the love we're referring to, that agape love of God, is self-sacrificing. So that's what we're going to call the third point of the text, the application of love. So in this chapter, and it's really one big paragraph, one unit of thought about love, starts in verse 7, goes all the way down to the end in verse 21. John's fleshing out again for us for the third time already in this letter, the test of love. Because the Apostle John gets deeper and deeper every time he recycles through it. He embellishes, elaborates on, on these doctrines. And so here the main thought is your love life, your love life in Christ. And that's going to dictate to you and others around you the attitude that you should have on Judgment Day. Should you be confident of Judgment Day that's coming, or should you be fearful? So let's look at these points one by one. The first one, again, is the declaration, so that you don't have to worry on Judgment Day. That's in verses 13 to 16. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide, or we live, in him, and he, referring to God, lives in us because he has given us of his spirit holy spirit now what is john referring to in this phrase when he says by this we know i think he's going back to verse 12 what just came before that if you're abiding in god he in you your love for others is going to be perfected it's going to prove that you have the spirit of god in you And then that connects with what follows here in this text. But the glue that pulls this all together, this word, this favorite word I think of the Apostle John, he goes to it over and over and over again, is abide. Abide literally from the Greek language means to be connected with or stay with someone, to be present with someone or something. And I think the best analogy of that, John used it in John 15, is the vine and the branches, right? Find Jesus Christ, find dresser God, branches are believers professing believers. That's gospel. And so it's all over that chapter, and abide is used by John a half a dozen times in this letter. So John wants us to know, ginosko, he wants us to know experientially in our hearts, not just our minds, That we belong to Christ, that we're with him, we're connected to him, like the branches are connected to the vine for life. And what happens when that connection occurs, vine and branches? Well, fruit comes out. The fruit of the what in our case? The fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And what is, interestingly enough, the overarching fruit of the spirit we find in Galatians 5? It is love. So to lay the foundation for all of this, John then moves to the truth test. Look at 14, verse 14 in the text. And we have seen and testified, mark that word, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So you are what you believe, right? So John reminds us again, the Christian faith begins, always rests on a foundation of faith in the truth. The truth of what? He said, Jesus is the Son of God, he's Lord and Savior of the world, meaning he's God in the flesh. And John knows this better than us, why? Because he's testifying. Interesting word, that's where we get the English word martyr for, someone who has died to proclaim the truth of their faith. And it's in a present tense, so John's always witnessing. John is an eyewitness to all this, folks, we're talking about justice in courtrooms, he's a creditable witness. Go to the beginning of this letter, chapter 1 of 1 John 1, and look at how it begins. He sets the tone, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who is that? Verse 2 tells us, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What does that sound like? It sounds like the first chapter, the Mm -hmm. prologue of John's Gospel, chapter 1. It's talking about the Word that became flesh. He's talking about Jesus Christ. John is a very trustworthy eyewitness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. How can he be that kind of witness? Why does his testimony stand up? Simply because he lived with Christ in the flesh. He saw it lived it all as an eyewitness so logically then you go to verse 15 back in first john 4 whoever confesses that jesus is the son of god god abides in him and he in god again that word confession or declaration as i'm calling this point here it's not just words it's not just a mere profession of facts about things you believe historically about jesus most americans do that But there's a massive difference between believing things about Jesus that may be true and believing in the sense of this Greek word that has to do with faith and trust, trusting, willing to stake your life on what you believe. Do you get the difference there? Profound. It's a heart declaration or confession that Jesus is Lord. He is the master, kurios, king, ruler of your life. And your life, the way you live it can back that up. You need that, you need that confession, that declaration to be saved, as Paul wrote in Romans 10.9. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe, trust in the fact he's been raised from the dead, you will be saved. So... My life, I bet my life right now on Jesus, I really do. And because of that declaration of dependence, dependence on Christ, he's the one I love and follow, I know that God is in me and I am in him because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now you see how that works? Now go to verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides or stays in him. In other words, we're saying deep down in our hearts, from when the time God saved us, and we know today, God is love. All who live in love, they live in God. God lives in them. All of that is grounded in faith. And that's going back to last week's message. With a new life comes new love. And the source of love is God. So his love lives in us, and then should love, that love should love, come out through us to others. And that's part of this declaration. So then we have verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. We're talking the confirmation here, verses 17 to 19. Here we get into a confirmation of the declaration of faith. And this may be the key verse, verse 17, this whole passage. It's the big idea here because the idea of the verse is if the Lord loves us and our love for God going out to people, if it's real, if it's perfected, which is a Greek word that literally has the idea of something maturing, being finished, being completed, right? You're at the finish line, all right? It's reaching its goal. If you have that kind of love then you can have a confidence. Our perfected love is the proof positive that we can stand boldly before God with confidence. That's a very interesting word in the original language, too. Confidence means you have the, the freedom to come before God and to speak in front of Him. Freedom to speak. It's to be fearless. For what? On the day of judgment that's coming. I want to be confident on that day. Don't you? Amen. What is that day? Well, it may not be a literal 24-hour day in this context. It refers to a general period of time, all right? And judgment, well, that has more than one meaning as well. Judgment can mean discernment. We make judgments all the time, every day. What is true? What is not? I think the people that were ransacking Miami last night were acting out of poor judgment. Where am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Believe it or not, those are practical, minor judgment calls. But in this sense, in this context, the word is referring to a final decision, like a sentence that's pronounced in a court of law. That kind of judgment is condemnation, and it's going to lead to punishment being meted out, just like in any courtroom. Think about the Lord Jesus. Jesus. At on the Mount Matthew 5, he's looking at a bunch of Pharisees who thought they had never murdered anybody in the flesh, so they were good with God. Jesus looked at their hearts and said, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. They murdered in their hearts with hatred. So we need to say something about this day of judgment. It's probably not your favorite topic. It is a little uncomfortable, but it is coming. People need to be ready for it. And Christians need to hear about it so they can have confidence before God, according to the text here, that they're going to escape it. And it's coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, that's physically, and after that comes what? Judgment. Judgment. That event is guaranteed to happen. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. Now, according to our author here, the Father has and Jesus the authority to execute judgment as the son of God. That means he's going to give resurrection of life to those that are in the light. That's a synonymous idea we study here, or the judgment of death is going to come to those that live their lives here in the darkness. What does that day look like? Well, it's the sentence being carried out of the great white throne judgment. I could take you several places where I'm going to go, you may want to follow me briefly, it is to the end of your Bible The end of the book of Revelation. It's probably the most stark picture of what this day of judgment looks like. It's in chapter 20. And I'll just give you a little bit of it if you're following or making note. The beginning of verse 11 says, this is the Apostle John, again writing, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had what? Done. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, think of that as the pit, some feel it might be kind of a temporary area spiritually for the dead. They were thrown into the Lake of fire. And this is the second death, the death, the lake of fire. The first death, of course, is physical. You just heard Hebrews 9. This is the second, which is spiritual. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that is only for the elect people, that's only for Christians, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And of course, the lake of fire is referring to the place we call hell. Why are people judged anyway? And why eternally? I mean, there's some pretty good people out there. I'm going to take those two questions backwards. The first one let's talk about hell. Some want to soft sell hell, underemphasize it. It's a tough doctrine. I remember back in the old days, you wouldn't even pronounce it completely. It would be called H E double toothpicks, something like that. Why? Because it's a hard truth. It's a hard word to say. People at judgment. There are some people that's so hard, they think some people will be annihilated. Their souls will just be extinguished forever. They'll go out of existence while the redeemed would enjoy body and soul forever in heaven, right? Because the idea is kind of like, God can't punish people forever, would he? New age thinkers, the cults don't think so. In fact, you may have heard of the name Mary Baker Eddy, she's the founder of Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science, and she said, quote, heaven and hell are states of thought, not places. People experience their own heaven or hell right here on earth, end quote. And you've heard of the Moonies, right? Their legendary cult leader, Sun Young Moon, said, quote, God will not desert any person eternally. By some means, he couldn't explain how, they will be restored. So we, all of mankind, listen, get this, we're eternal creatures. Everyone in this room, everyone watching today, you are going to live forever. Whether you want to or not, you're going to. You're immortal in that sense. And you were created to live that way. Both body and soul. The Old Testament writer said we were made for eternity and our souls can only find their rest in Him. That simply means this. Everybody was created ideally to be in a personal relationship with god forever but for many that's not going to happen because of sin as the prophet daniel said daniel 12 2 and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth let talking about people dead and buried shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt i think that sounds eternal doesn't it i mean everlasting eternal same idea means forever And when people die now, before the end, before the Day of Judgment, what happens is their body is buried, or is cremated, or it's destroyed somehow, and what happens is their soul, which is eternal, goes someplace. For believers, it goes into everlasting life with some kind of a temporal body or state. Call it stage one, if you will. And we don't have, admittedly, a lot of detail on that stage. The Lord didn't see fit to give us a whole lot of it. I'll give you a little peek for me. When I was thinking about this in study, I thought about the Mount of Transfiguration, the story in Luke where Moses and Elijah appeared to a core of disciples. And I thought of that as kind of like the difference, because they were in body, a form that was recognizable. It's kind of like the difference between the tent, the tabernacle in the wilderness that was for the wandering Jews, and more of a temporal home, and then the final temple to be built, which was to be their permanent worship home. Maybe something like that. Regardless, the Bible does not teach annihilationism. It does teach eternal torment of one kind or another for the unredeemed. Who told us that? The author of the faith, Jesus, talking about the Day of Judgment, said... Quote, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Mm. Matthew 25. That cannot be more clear what Jesus is saying. Life is eternal. You're punished in torment in hell or paradise in heaven. You have to make a choice. So what happens is that when we die on this earth, what happens is before the Lord returns, maybe a rapture for the church, the body and the soul separate. The soul, and the temporal body of the Christian, the true born again believer again goes to heaven to be with Christ, as Paul said, upon being threatened with death, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Right. And the soul of the unredeemed and the unbeliever goes into hell, a state of that place, until. The day of judgment comes with the second coming of Christ, and then the eternal soul and the eternal forever body come together. For believers, that's going to be with Jesus, not only in the earthly millennial kingdom, I believe, but also in the new heavens and earth to come, whereas unbelievers will have a body and live forever in an eternity in hell after being judged. Now, this is not meant to be an exhaustive look at the doctrine of hell. and can't only to say this. It is going to be a place of torment in many ways, which is why it's good we're talking about this as the scripture, 1 John, is dealing with it. Listen, it's not a bad idea to scare the hell out of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think about it. It's a very appropriate term. In large part, when preachers preach, evangelists... Give the gospel. Christians testify to others. We want to scare the hell out of people. Because of texts like this. Just like this one. The Apostle Paul. Talking about the second coming of the Lord. And the day of the Lord. As they called it in the Old Testament. From 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In the middle of that chapter. Verse 7. Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wow. Vengeance will come to Christ-rejecting rebels. The day of the Lord culminates in the day of judgment. And the death, the level of judgment, will vary from person to person, I might add, as the Lord did in Matthew 11, comparing the sins of some to Tyre and Sidon. The Lord even judged some people at a pretrial hearing of sorts, talking about court when he did the woes of condemnation on the religious Jews in Matthew 23. That was judgment. The idea is that the day of judgment should drive people to fear it. Why? Because judgment day is the day that they're going to face the Lord and answer for what they've been doing all their lives and for all the sins they've committed. Look at verse 18 and 19 of our text.
1: There is no fear in love,
0: but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So, great passage. Sometimes misunderstood. And it makes a great connection, I think, to verse 17. Because it says, for those of us that love to the max, our love is being perfected and matured, okay, there's no fear of judgment. We're not fearing judgment and facing God. Why not? Because according to this, we've passed the test of love. We love people, we love the church. That's why we have that verse 17 confidence on judgment day. We've loved God. We've loved people as Jesus not only commanded us to, but because we abide or live in him and his life is in us, it becomes natural. Therefore, that new love, according to the original language, it casts out or drives out or just lets go of fear, judgment fear, and God's just punishment or penalty for sin. There's two kinds of fear in the Bible you should be able to distinguish, by the way. There's a good kind, there's a warning kind. Believers are going to know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's good. It's good and wise to reverently respect or fear the Lord, to be in awe of Him and His holiness as the prophet Isaiah was. And he just fell down in front of Him when he saw that vision. Woe is me. Right? That's what a good fear of the Lord is. We don't see enough of that in the church. Mm -hmm. Psalm 34.9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, or believers, for those who fear Him have no lack. You'll have everything you need. The unbeliever should fear the Lord's, what? Justice. His judgment to come. If they're rejecting Christ, King Jesus. That's the warning. That's the fear that should drive the lost person to godly sorrow and repentance and plead for God's saving grace and mercy. Then you have professing Christians. They might be struggling with sin and Maybe they want to give up on that fight of faith, or you have some, they profess faith, but they don't care about their sin. They think they have this fire insurance premium from hell, paid for by Jesus in their hand, keeps them free like some Monopoly get-out-of-jail card for free, so they don't worry. You know what Jesus told people like that? Worry. Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. I'm talking about man, the authorities, government, whatever. Rather, fear him, the Father, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a good fear. Now, a disciple of Christ who's living out of perfecting love doesn't have to fear that way or worry about punishment on the day of judgment. The only judgment Christians are going to face, listen, is the extent of the rewards that we're going to get from god to serve him in the kingdom to come on earth and in the new heaven that's it and that's what ties in here with the end of verse 17 because as he is so also are we in this world that sounds a little weird at first glance. what does that mean it means our perfecting love that gives us confidence in judgment day is going to enable us to see christ when he returns Remember the familiar verse, verse 2 of chapter 3? Wants want you to go back there for a moment, where John is talking about the children of God and writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. How is that even possible? Well, in what way are we like Jesus in this world? Which is what our verse was saying. Well, it's because of his atonement. His work on the cross purchases for us what? Two things. Forgiveness and righteousness. Mark that. The letter here says we are righteous because he is righteous. Remember, God declared us righteous before him in his court of law when he justified us, declared us righteous by faith in Christ alone. That's when you were saved. That's our position because the perfect life of Christ, his righteousness, was credited to us. That's how God can look at us and say, not guilty. You're not guilty. Christ paid the price for you. So in Christ, we're righteous. That's how we're like him. And we then have the right to see him in the flesh when he comes back without fear. God's not going to condemn someone who looks like his son. And your love life should demonstrate that. So, do you see why the passage here is giving us confirmation of our confession of faith in Christ? And this is why we can know, we can have assurance we belong to him. Because the truth that we confess, it just, it just feeds our new life of love, which is a perfecting, maturing love that confirms for us who we really are as disciples in Christ. So, you don't have to fear Judgment Day, Christian. Don't worry about it. Okay? It's coming, but don't worry about it. Because God loves you. Which leaves a quick comment on verse 19. We love because God first loved us. Listen, we saw this last time. John is just circling back again to the source of love, which is God himself. Verse 7. That's his nature. That's who he is. And because he gave us the Holy Spirit to live in us, we're able to love like God. Not to the extent of the degree God loves. We can never do that. But we can picture his love. Because he What? sovereignly chose to love us first. Not only here, but Romans 8 tells us that. God predestined you to be saved from eternity past. He called you to be saved at a particular time. At that time, he gave you the new birth, so you would believe in him, you would be justified, and that is the chain of God's incredible, incomprehensible, redeeming love for us who are his own. So, love protects us from fear. Love and faith conquer fear. And that should lead to something, right? Belief leads to behavior. So we're going to end by applying all this, which is we have a declaration, we have a confirmation, and now we have an application to make in verses 20 and 21. Follow with me verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Hmm. Some manuscripts say you can't love your brother if you don't love God, a God you haven't even seen. Here, it's much easier to love someone in the flesh, isn't it? That's the idea. And John goes back to this love-hate contrast, like the difference between Cain and Abel to picture it. Remember? The love of the brother from the love of God is that agape love Christ demonstrated on the cross. As Pastor George put it last week in our open response time to the message, he said, quote, love is giving someone what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost, End quote. That's hard to beat that definition. Though I'll tell you what, I'll synthesize it. George is right here. I'm going to put that together in one word. And that word is grace, unmerited favor. And John applied the picture of Christ to the love we have for each other. Go back to chapter 3 real quick in verses 16 and 17. It's big. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You're saying, okay, what? I have to be crucified to show this love, really? Verse 17 makes it more practical, because it's about sacrifice. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, Meaning fails to show compassion, mercy. How does God's love abide in him? God's called us, he's equipped us for lives that should match our lips. Our practice of faith, right? Love to a brother, match your profession, which is I love God. See the hypocrite says, I love God, and then fails to demonstrate it, particularly in love for brothers and sisters in the faith. All that proves is his lips are lying lips. So love meets needs, and it's not an option for the believer, but it's a choice to make in obedience to the Lord, which leads finally to the end of the chapter in the passage, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the test of love, the test of obedience here, they go hand in hand in this thought. And in this chapter, the doctrinal and the moral are coming together. And I've always appreciated this distinction about the Christian faith, the true biblical historic faith, that doctrine leads to duty, but instinctively, automatically, we just live who we are. The real Christian faith is more than other religions who just claim to believe and be something. You can't just claim to be a Christian. And John is writing that letter and pounding home that point with his pen to refute that idea over and over and over again. He's saying, in essence, faith will always, true saving faith, will always give way to fruit. If there's no faith, there's no root for the fruit. If you possess faith, if you profess faith in Christ, ask yourself do you bear fruits of repentance? And faith is a way of life that would give proof of your profession. Not only to you, but to your loved ones in the world. I mean, the love we profess must be confirmed by its action. And the love, again, here is the very love of God. Jesus said, by their fruit you will what? Know them. Know them. This is all over. I've always said, God is more concerned about what we do and why we do it than what we say. Mm. I've always looked for this example for my children. I appreciate it. I love it when they say they love me, but I really get psyched up even more when they show me how much they love me. Love is manifested by obedience and action. So as we close, I just want to charge you. I want to exhort you with another application of love so you really know, know by this, (laughs) that you're abiding or living with God. Listen, people, show and share Jesus Christ. Meaning the gospel. That's love. Let God use you to make a disciple the rest of this year. Do the hard thing. Yes, it's countercultural. Yes, it's uncomfortable. It's supposed to be. But remember today what is at stake, which is what? The day of judgment. Get out of your comfort zone. Pray for your ones, those lost loved ones in your family, friends, also, co workers, fellow students. And when the Lord gives you an opportunity to open a door, push through the door and be a witness, just as John was. Just tell someone what Jesus means to you. Tell them what God did for you when he saved you. It doesn't have to be com- complex at all. Remember today this text and what's at stake from it. The day of judgment. So if you're living like Christ, you're loving like Christ, you know Christ, look, no worries. No worries on judgment day. But tell them, if they don't know Christ, they don't abide in him, their life doesn't show it, tell them to worry. Worry about it. Have fear of that great day. Tell them about hell and the only one that can rescue them from it. Amen? Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, from your own words, and the New Testament often talked about hell as a prison of the worst kind, as an eternal death sentence, and it's impossible to understand first century prison conditions by looking at American prisons today. Prisoners there the guilty. They're punished with things like cable TV, three hots in a cot, exercise and showers. In many of the world's jails throughout history, jailers did treat prisoners like criminals. Worse than that, as subhuman as animals. But even the worst of any earthly prison condition pales in comparison to the eternal dungeon of your hell. God, you will not offer anything to comfort or relieve their agony ever to those that go. So now is the time while they're living in this life to receive pardon, to receive forgiveness, to escape that sentence and receive real freedom if they would just turn and trust. So I beg, I implore anyone listening, viewing today, Zoom, Facebook, audio only, be ready for the day of judgment. We see glimpses of it in life this week, this season of time. We see glimpses of it. But it's nothing like the day that will come when Jesus comes back. And even the Lord said to his followers, no one knows the day or the hour. We always have to be ready unbelievers even more so for the bible says tomorrow is not promised to us life is but a vapor like that it can be so i pray today that someone will turn to jesus christ and will trust in him as lord and savior to forgive them of their sins so that they would know true freedom peace and joy not only now but for everlasting life and not have to worry about anything like a judgment day I pray these things and all God's people said and online. Amen. Amen. community church is a god-glorifying christ-exalting and bible-centered body of believers who love god and love people by making disciples of jesus christ for more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org that's Christcomchurch.com.org, and look for the giving tab at the top of the home page